0: So this lady said to us, I have been trying to address my insulin levels for four years and I've done Weight Watchers and I've been to all of the lessons that the NHS give us about diabetes. I've done three lessons with you and my insulin levels have dropped already. She said, I cannot believe it. I am astounded. I thought it was gonna feel like I was on diet food, but I've been proven wrong on every point. And I've also made 10 new friends. So it's like therapy. It's like cooking therapy delicious food, a great time.
1: Hello, dear listener, and welcome to yet another episode of the Plant-Based News Podcast, where we delve into the heart of veganism, environmentalism, and incredible people making waves in the plant-based community. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie, and today we're bringing you an episode that's all about community, compassion, and culinary innovation. We're joined by Sarah Bentley, a pioneer in the vegan community and a visionary founder of Made in Hackney, a community cooking school that's transforming the way we think about plant-based food. Made in Hackney isn't just a cooking school, it's a movement towards a healthier, more sustainable and inclusive future. Sarah's journey is a testament to the power of plant-based eating and the transformative impact it can have on individuals and communities alike. From nurturing health and wellness to fostering community bonds and addressing food insecurity, Sarah's work is a beacon of hope and inspiration. In our conversation, we're going to explore the origins of Made in Hackney and the challenges and triumphs along the way and how Sarah and her team are empowering people from all walks of life to embrace the joys and benefits of plant based cooking. As always, if you like this episode, please don't forget to comment, like, and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the PBN Podcast, Sarah. This has been a long time coming, and I'm really glad to finally sit down with you and uh, hear your story.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really happy to chat to you today. And yeah, it does feel like it's been a long time in the pipeline. So great to finally be here having this conversation. Welcome to Making Our mission is to tackle health inequalities, food access, the climate crisis, and bring communities together using the power of plants. So how do we do all that? Since 2012, our plant-based community cookery school has delivered over 4,000 joyful classes to people in London and beyond. Inspiring more people to
2: cook, grow and eat more plants. And what else do we do? We hold regular community feasts to share joy, build bridges and celebrate different cultural cuisines. Each year we save 20 tons of food from landfill. And provide 70,000 free meals.
0: You can tune into our online classes everywhere in the world.
1: We're not
2: just a cookery school.
1: We're part of a movement. Support us today. So before we talk about all your incredible achievements of the last few years, let's go back in time. And I always like to ask my guests this first question. How did you discover the plant-based or vegan lifestyle? Where did that all begin for you?
0: So when I was nine, I was a very independent, stubborn, strong-willed and probably quite difficult child, but also wonderful in other ways. And I just realized that there was this huge disconnect between the message that adults conveyed to you to care for animals, to care for things, to look after your pets, and then to eat meat from animals on your table every day. And the thing that really pushed me over into I'm going to become vegetarian, even though none of my family members are, is I read an article in my mum's witch report about how animals are transported to the slaughterhouse.
1: And for I those won't... that aren't British, can you just explain what a witch report is? not an actual witch.
0: <laughs> I mean, no, it's not an actual witch. It's um, an industry slash sort of trade magazine that reviews uh, products, services, and they used to do investigative reports in it about manufacturing and other such things. So it was a very dry title for a nine-year-old to pick up. But I picked it up, And I read this feature on how animals are transported to the slaughterhouse. And I will never forget sitting in my bedroom in floods of tears, feeling like the adult world has lied to me. The adult world has let me down. And I'm not going to trust the adult world ever again. (laughs) And I will never forget that feeling. And that was my path to vegetarianism. It took another nine years to find veganism I was led to believe veganism was extreme and not necessary and was still living in the bubble that cows needed to be milked how completely bizarre and um, it was only when I was older and found out information for myself that I made the transition fully to veganism
1: that's amazing I'm so fascinated by people such as yourself who have these realizations at such a young age how I just yeah because it, it seems eating animals and living in this carnistic speciesist world it seems like the default is not it it's 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 so ingrained in our culture and when people go against that grain especially children I find it amazing uh mainly because I I consider myself a very compassionate and sensitive and I was a very sensitive child I loved animals but I didn't have that connection. I didn't make that connection or have that awareness at all. Uh, At least I don't remember. I recently discovered that I quite likely have ADHD and part of the symptoms of ADHD can be a lack of memory from childhood. (laughs) So I actually am missing a lot of like memories, but what I do know is that I loved animals and I was so passionate about them. And being an adult and being vegan now, I always question, continuously question, why did I not make the connection? Was it because I didn't have enough influences around me? And, you know, I'm just curious as to the t- that time of your life. Were there vegetarians around you? Was there other than that magazine? Like, I guess what I'm asking is what makes you different? What do you think made you different as a child to, to many other kids?
0: There were no other vegetarians around me, and all my happiest family memories had meat and animal products built into them. On a Sunday morning, I would sit on my dad's knee and watch Sunday morning television, which was a big treat. I think on a Saturday, Wacker Day, which was this crazy kids' program with a mallet. Um, I won't go too deeply into that. And we would eat bacon sandwiches. If I did really well at school or had anything to celebrate, we would have toad in the hole, which is sausages in batter you know, all of the great family traditions and things I loved most involved meat. So it was actually very scary turning around and saying to my parents, I'm not gonna eat meat anymore. I was very lucky. They were older parents. I think I was a happy accident. They'd had a number of children before me. And so they were quite relaxed when I announced this. And my dad said, don't worry, Sarah, we'll have cheese and onion sandwiches instead on a Sunday morning. And my mum said, well, you're going to have to start eating quite a bit more vegetables. She was a home economics teacher, so she was very informed about food. So she was confident that she could cook food without meat for me. I think they thought I wouldn't succeed. And I picked up on that. So as soon as I knew they thought I wouldn't succeed, I was going to show them with all I had that I was going to be vegetarian and nothing was going to take me off that path. So I think a good dose of stubbornness and uh, also that Witch Report article was really horrific. I mean, it was so horrific that I really carried the words of that in my heart for years to come. So I think that made a massive impact. But yeah, I was the lone vegetarian in Lincolnshire. It's a rural farming county, very meat heavy. Nearby town is known for its pork pies. Lincolnshire is known for its sausages. It still is. It did feel like I was very much alone in that decision but i was determined to follow it through
1: the only veggie in the village <laughs> exactly yeah uh, in your younger years what did you do with this knowledge obviously you sounded like a very uh, headstrong and forthright young person you know at school and at college or at uni you know these values and these these ideas and these ideals and this ideology like what did you do with it did you get active and tell us a bit more about like how your the evolution of your awareness especially about the food system because obviously there's multiple things here there's human health as we call the vegan trifecta there's human health the environmental aspects of of a plant-based diet and of course an omnivorous diet and then obviously animal welfare and animal ethics and the effect of the animal agriculture industry on them, the animals themselves so I'd love to hear a little bit about like how you evolved through your advocacy not just with food but you know animals themselves
0: I have always been a people pleaser. I'm the youngest family member and I grew up watching quite a lot of trouble and strife amongst the older siblings that I really didn't want to repeat or experience. So I always had a very gentle approach to my activism where I would be resolute in that I wasn't going to eat the chicken or the sausage or whatever auntie or uncle or neighbour was in trying to entice me with because it used to be my favourite food. But I knew never to sort of shout or argue or tell them that they were wrong about their choices. I would just quite quietly say, I love animals. I don't need to eat them. So I'm not going to. But You can if you want to. And I would always put that at the end. You can if you want to. I wouldn't kind of tell them they had to stop. And I carried this sort of very gentle approach with me throughout my whole life. When I became vegan, I was about 19, I discovered that through um, my founding career as a reggae music journalist. And I went to Jamaica and I experienced Idle Food, which was vegan food. And in just the space of a week, I felt massive changes in my health and well-being eating Idle Food. Because I was vegetarian, I was going to the Idle restaurants, there was obviously no egg, no dairy in that. And that just suited me down to the ground. So I came back to England, did some research, and had this real light bulb moment where I was like, I thought vegetarianism was enough. But actually, if I'm truly compassionate for the animals, I should have been vegan all along. And that was a real sort of car crash moment as well, where I felt like, oh, I haven't been doing enough for 10 years. So I evolved my diet. It did take about a year to fully drop all the dairy and the egg. The thing that got me was invisible egg because you're talking like 23 years ago. This is now I'm 41 and this was when I was 20. There was very little vegan food available, especially when you were out and about on the street. And so you always had to check for like invisible egg. But it probably took about a year to be completely vegan where I was organized enough to have my snacks in my bag, knew which shops had snacks I could have, you know, just to get everything in place. I used to organize these big parties called Skank and Grills. And we'd have a sound system in the garden. We'd have reggae playing. I'd have quite a few of my friends there from the reggae world, but also from all my other kind of friend groups from university and just a very diverse range of people. And I'd cook these massive vegan buffets. And I would take great delight in seeing everyone there absolutely smash through the food and say, what's this? What's that? That's a sprout of mung bean. That's plantain. That's this. And they would just annihilate it. And I'd talk through recipes and how to cook things. And I really saw that as my greatest act of advocacy, that everyone would come together, have a wonderful time, eat this amazing food, and then ask me loads of questions about it and start trying to replicate it at home. And it was all done with so much joy and laughter and non-judgment That kind of energy, that community energy, that joy, that non-judgment is what I really wanted to bring into Made in Hackney. And when I founded Made in Hackney, I very much had the feeling of those original skank and grill parties in my heart because I could see that joy and love and a good time was a great vehicle for bringing about change for many people as opposed to making them feel guilty or angry or judged. So also that suited my personality type, that type of activism. I think there's a place for all types of activism, and I'm really grateful for the activists we have that take a much stronger hardline approach. But we all play a part in the ecosystem, and all of our different types of activism will resonate with different audiences and with different people. So that was always my approach, that sort of gentle, firm in my beliefs, but gentle and loving and compassionate in how I shared them.
1: No, absolutely amazing. I'm fascinated to hear about your your journalist career and, and um, yeah. you, you know, how did you get into that? Like, what, what was that world like? Because obviously, you know, music journalism is a, a fun thing because you get to go to lots of events and meet loads of amazing people. And, you know, who, is, who are some of the what are some of the highlights of that of that work?
0: It was a great occupation to have as a young person, that was uh, without a doubt. So when I went to Jamaica, I interviewed people like Buju Banton and Elephant Man and Vibes Cartel. I actually listened at home to all the classic roots reggae artists but for my career I tended to interview the really quite nasty um, dance hall artists because they were contemporary magazines wanted to hear about what they were saying quite controversial some not very nice views some of them had but you know my job was to go and interview them and of push them and and ask them different questions and as a 19 to 23 year old it's very exciting and fascinating and it's completely different to your Lincolnshire culture you know in in the UK so I loved it and I interviewed different dancehall dancers and sound system operators I interviewed common put down your bags love I know in the past love has been sort of hard on you uh, run the MC Gwen Stefani. You
2: around that track, so it's not to happen like that, cause ain't no Hollaback, girl, there ain't
0: no girl. So many people, so many people. Elisa Keys. This girl is on fire. Black Eyed Peas, I went on tour with them. Love, yo. the people dying. And when you practice what you and what you turn loads of
1: things i do wow. that sounds like loads of fun music is obviously also you know like food uh, an integral part of our culture and you know we're seeing more and more big music events and, you know like uh, Billie eilish's uh, family maggie bed and um her her kind of team at support and feed as well have been really like banging the drum to try and encourage more big music events to go plant-based and to think about the environmental aspect of food but it's really really difficult to make these changes um, from a cultural perspective, as you talked about, like if we want people to make changes, you know, forcing them into it or pressurizing people into anything is going to have the opposite effect, aren't they? People often go the the ups, you know, they, they run in the opposite direction. I've always been in the mindset that food, which is a love language, you know, is the best way to kind of communicate this idea of a cultural shift with our food, because a lot of the time people really care about the emotional connection they have with food, which is those special dishes that grandma made or mum made or dad made or auntie made or whatever, and you have that love and that connection with it. And when someone comes along and says, oh, you can't eat that food anymore because that food's bad for you or that food's bad for the planet or what about the poor animals? A lot of people feel like it's an attack on their culture, or attack on their family. Yeah, you know, it's an affront, you know, and it's people, re- as I'm sure some vegans listening can attest the reaction that people... <laughs> can give is truly terrifying sometimes because people are very protective over these things and this is why we have to be kind and gentle and compassionate now of course the hardcore animal rights activists will say well what about the animals it's not very kind and compassionate what's happening to them and that is absolutely true but we are dealing with human psychology here you know, it's not as easy as just telling people what to do, and they magically stop. We have to work with people and help them go along the journey. And obviously, Made in Hackney—that's what it's all about: taking people along a journey and supporting people. But love to hear a little bit more about the inception of Made in Hackney, and and let, let's talk a little bit about the broader picture of like food sovereignty as well. um There's some shocking statistics in the UK at the moment. You know, million plus people using food banks four and a half million children or maybe more um, uh, who are dealing with food security issues. How bad is it in the UK and and how is something like Maiden Hackney sort of, I guess, filling the gaps and giving people support where the the support provided by the government is, is sorely lacking?
0: Food insecurity in the UK is chronic and it's also, I believe, obscene because we have more than enough resources, more than enough wealth and more than enough food to feed everyone twice over. Um, it's a multi pronged issue you know there's obviously the issue of food waste, food being wasted that could feed people, but the biggest issue is you know inflation has skyrocketed, and salaries and benefit payments have not, and so you don't need to be an economist to you know work out that if rent is soaring and heat is soaring and all the basic living expenses are soaring, and your wages are completely stagnant or your benefits are completely stagnant or just gone up very fractionally. The maths just doesn't work. The sums don't work. And so what that happens in the UK, you see parents going without food so that their children can eat. We have a lot of families where the children eat fruit and veg, but the parents don't because it's expensive. It comes into the house and is put aside just for the children. Uh, We see families where the parents aren't eating at all for days on end to make sure their children can eat. We also have a lot of people who are existing on ready meals because, you know, you can get a ready meal in Iceland for a pound, which um, there's a place for ready meals. If you're very physically unable to cook or you live in a hostel and you only have access to a microwave, you know, you can be very sniffy about ready meals, but actually there is a place for them. You know, people are are spending £15, that's two ready meals a day for a week, you know, and a little bit over. And so nutritionally, they're kind of starving even though they are eating enough food. So we have people who are sort of nutritionally starving, but they are eating enough calories, but they're not getting the minerals and vitamins they need. And then we have a vast amount of people that just are not getting the quantity of food on a consistent basis. And for many households, and this is also what's quite shocking, three meals a day has become a luxury as opposed to a given. And that's way more people than come up in the food poverty stats. And, you know, it's because we're living in a system where the prices get dialed up and everyone's wages and benefits don't. And it's a ridiculous system because the knock-on effects on health, prosperity, the NHS, performance in school, performance in work, sick days, you know, we don't think in a circular way in the UK. It's all isolated and separated. And the impact of having a system like this isn't taken into account. We also have a government that does terrible checks and balances on food products and food marketing, the volume of sort of sugar and additives, etc. in the food that we sell in the UK and other parts of the world are banned. There's this idea that the market, the free market will govern everything and order will reign. And we obviously know that that's complete BS and that actually checks and balances do need to come into place for the government, such as The types of food that are sold near schools, the types of food that are advertised in the evening to children, the types of food that have cartoon characters plastered across the front of them, etc., etc. But our current government has gone about unpicking a lot of the incoming uh, policies that we're going to put checks and balances on this. They've been quietly undoing the work of food activists, which is absolutely infuriating. And we've got to a point now where it's very hard to even lobby for plant-based foods in certain settings because we're actually lobbying that there's food on kids' plates in the first place. It's actually, we've gone backwards, not forwards. We were in a place where it felt very reasonable to say three times a week, kids should be being fed only plant-based food in schools. But now it's like we're in a place where it's like, we've had to bring free school meals in for all kids in London because so many aren't getting enough food. So it put the plant-based conversation backwards because people couldn't cope with the idea of free food and making it plant-based. So it's been quite a frustrating time and a time where I've had to be very compassionate in understanding what people's priorities are because it's really slowed down the pace of adoption of a broader plant-based diet across, you know, like schools, hospitals, etc. What makes a community kitchen in Hackney so important right now, and so important to a community like yours? Well, I'll tell you. We're sick. I'm sick. You're sick. Our children are sick. In fact, our children are so sick for the first time in recent history, their life expectancy is said to be lower than our own. How is this possible? We're surrounded by so much medical advancement Well, you could say it's due to the prevalence of lifestyle-induced diseases. So diabetes, obesity, certain types of cancer, and that would be accurate. But you could also say it's because the planet's sick. Because if the air we breathe, the water we drink, and the soil that we grow our food in is sick, which it is, then how can we not be as well? Now these problems need addressing with a coordinated global action. But on a micro level, on a local level, these can all be solved in a kitchen, in a community kitchen.
1: Anyone who follows me personally on social media will know that I am no fan of the conservative government in this country. They've been in power for 13 years and have cut the public services to the bone. And people are battling and struggling everywhere. You know, people are now choosing between whether they should heat their home or eat food. And, you know, there's many parents going without regular meals to feed, you know, so their children can eat. You know, this should not be happening. It shouldn't be happening anywhere in the world, frankly, but it should not be happening in, in such a wealthy country as the UK. It is Absolutely criminal and you know the, the Tory government continues to go on and on about how at the next election they're going to solve all the problems. So well how are they going to solve the problems that they created over the last 13 years? It just absolutely boggles my mind you know let's look at something like food waste for example. we farm a lot of food in this country. 30% of the food that is planted does not reach the supermarket because it's not the right shape or size. And it probably ends up in a landfill or being fed to cows or, or I'm not sure where it goes, but it doesn't go to people, that's for sure. Then when it gets to the supermarket, 30% of that ends up in the trash in the bin uh, because it's damaged or it doesn't look right or it's, it's scuffed or something like that. And then the food that goes to people's homes, some roughly 30% of that also ends up in the bin because people don't eat enough or they buy too much. I, I don't even know what to say, Sarah. Like we live in this world, in this country where people are starving, they can't afford to eat and they don't have enough food. And there is so much food all around us. Supermarkets throw away mountains of food every single day. It is, it boils my blood. I mean, is there is what is being done about this? Because how can we have so much food insecurity and yet there is so much food all around us?
0: What is going wrong? <laughs> Well, there's, a, there's so many things going on. Um, so just looking at food culture, for example, in France, 14% of their diet comes from processed foods. In the UK, 57% of our diet comes from processed foods, which is a shocking and massive difference. And this sort of decline in food culture is because cookery was stopped being taught in schools. You know, the government didn't bring in checks and balances about the type of food in supermarkets, etc. Henry Dimbleby writes about this very well. So we are programmed to want high sugar, high high salt, high fat food. So if this is made readily available to us everywhere we go, that's what the majority of most people will start eating and crave to eat. And then you have the double whammy that it's normally cheaper than healthier foods. Now, when we set up Made in Hackney 12 years ago, we actually promoted a local, organic, seasonal plant-based diet. So we had all the bells and whistles. And if you were canny enough with your shopping habit in London, you could achieve that on a relatively low budget. We have actually had to take away the recommendation of local, organic, seasonal, because it is so cost prohibitive. And we stripped down our food policy to just being plant-based now, because it became, over that 12 years, it's become completely unachievable for most households. So You know, in that sense, we've gone backwards from a food culture perspective, from an environmental perspective, and also from a health nutrition, nutrition density of food, we've gone backwards. Um, So yeah, it's deeply infuriating. We work with so many families who are desperate to feed themselves and their children well. And what we offer in Made in Hackney in the cooking classes is to at least empower people with the skills to cook from scratch using raw ingredients. Because if you can cook with lentils, flour, basic ingredients you can really reduce the cost of your food bill but of course you need time you need to not be working two or three jobs you need to be living in a well-equipped home with a proper cooker and a proper kitchen etc so still despite our best efforts giving people tools and skills and information it is much harder now for people to eat well than it was when we first started 12 years ago and that's really depressing. I mean, we we still have a huge impact on the people we work with. And a lot of families tell us, I'm really on it now. I spend Sunday cooking. I fill up the freezer. We make your 20p burger recipe all the time. I've doled this out to the kids. And, you know, people find a system and they do it against all odds. We have people who feed their children and themselves incredible food. Because they've learned to cook, they've learned about fresh ingredients, they know where to shop and how to do it, and they are doing it. It's very difficult. You know, if you're ill, you have additional needs, you're working lots of jobs, it's a real challenge to get that good food into yourself and your family. And it shouldn't be, it should be the easy option as opposed to the most difficult option. And yet, it's It is massively infuriating that the Tories did bring in a suggestion that all schools should be providing cooking classes, but sadly, that's not actually played out into reality because a lot of schools don't have a kitchen anymore. They don't have a cooking class or they don't have the time or the resources. So there's often a lot of policy that comes in that seems positive, but there isn't the resources and the money behind it to really implement and roll it out nationally. So there's there's so many things at, at play here, but it could be addressed. I do think there's incredible work by community groups, not just made in Hackney, all over London, community food pantries, community shops where people buy a membership and every week spend a tenner but leave with like an enormous amount of shopping. There's loads of fantastic interventions, but we are just putting a little plaster over a gaping I was going to say that. It's it's not addressing responsibility at all. They should be looking at the basic cost of living and bringing in ideas like a universal basic income or such things to make sure people have enough money to eat. And to make sure people want to choose their own food, the people that we provide emergency food support for, which we launched during the COVID years, we were providing plant-based meals delivered to people's homes. It's a fantastic emergency service. But imagine not being able to choose what you want to eat every day. Choosing your own food is a basic human right. You choose what your palate likes, what your neurotype likes, the food that reflects your culture your preferences, the food that brings you comfort and joy. As soon as you're getting emergency food delivered to you, yes, people are grateful, but all of that is stripped from you. There's no dignity in emergency food provision. So yes, we did it. But when people say, oh, you know, do you want that to continue? In an ideal world, no, I don't want Made in Hackney to be doing emergency food. I want people to buy their own food.
1: It's not solving the problem, is it?
0: exactly to come to us to be inspired about plant-based food and learning multicultural cuisines of their neighbors that's what i want us to be doing but until we have a different political system the emergency work kind of needs to continue to prop people up
1: it's not as it's not as if we don't have the money you know some of the numbers that really again boil my blood are The post-pandemic situation with PPE, so that's the protective equipment that doctors and nurses needed uh, to protect them from COVID-19 and the pandemic. And over 10 billion pounds of unusable PPE had to be burned. I mean, that's 10 billion pounds of hardworking people's money that has literally gone up in smoke, thanks to Conservative government. And that's just one story of many stories of gargantuan amounts of money that have just literally gone to contractors and various companies offshore etc baroness we won't say her name uh, it's it, it yeah we have we need a new government that's that's for sure uh, and fingers crossed and when the, the general election finally comes this year we'll be we'll hopefully all we'll be voting for change i certainly know i will On the ground obviously as you say whilst we are trying to put out these fires and whilst we are trying to deal with reality because there's the dream of you know the utopian dream of a of a world where everyone gets to eat three meals a day and not have to worry i mean that shouldn't be utopian but you know that's the dream where we all get to eat and not to worry about where our food is coming from and and whether it's toxic or not whether it's loaded with microplastics that's the dream but today (laughs) we have to support people and Maiden Hackney is is part of uh, you know your legacy and, and something that you've created that, and we'll talk more about you know the future of it. But what is it for those that don't know? Um, how did you set it up, and like how does it function within the community? What kind of things does it do? Because obviously, there is going to be people out there who want to do something similar in their community and don't know where to begin. So, what was your journey with it? Love to to hear its inception. So. Um-
0: I will talk about our history, but do remind me to come back to how people can start, where they can begin, because we have a program for that. So don't let me forget that. Okay, that sounds um, good. We started uh, Made in Hackney in 2012. We're a charity and we're a community cookery school, a plant-based community cookery school. So we are 100% vegan, but we call ourselves plant-based to be more approachable to people. When we launched the uh, the project, sorry it was a very grassroots initiative. We had a very small team. We were working from a little tiny basement underneath a health food shop in Stoke Newington. And the idea was to bring diverse community members together to cook healthy, affordable, plant-based food. And um, we would be tackling health inequalities, the climate crisis, and providing a space for diverse people to come together and get to know each other and build community. So when we started, we were a tiny team, there was just me and a finance officer working an afternoon a week. But we immediately could see that our premise, our vision for this completely worked. We started a cooking course with a group, an Irish health support agency called Mind Yourself. 12 Irish women in the room, none of them vegetarian, clearly none of them vegan, all together to discuss their health challenges, but through the enjoyable medium of cooking classes. And they didn't realise there was no meat till the second or third class. And then they were like, where's the meat? You know, this would be great with sausages, etc. But we were all about them having an enjoyable experience trying new vegetables, new seeds, talking to them about their health challenges, their life challenges, and incorporating that into the lesson so that the classes problem solved So for them, they wanted quick meals. So we made sure the whole course was meals they could do in 15 minutes. And in the space of six weeks, there was so much change. People talked about their palates changing, that they weren't craving junk food so much anymore, that they'd visited the farmer's market to go and look at all the dirty vegetables. And actually, they were much better. And, you know, there were so many great outcomes. People told us their mental health had improved, that they got stuck in a rut with cooking. And this had really sparked their imagination to try new things. People were eating seeds and things that they never would have considered eating after this six-week course. And I was like, wow, this really works. It's bringing people together to cook, to eat. It's free, so people aren't wasting their money on ingredients that they're not sure they're going to like. So if you're trying to expose people to all these new ingredients, it's quite hard to get them to risk their precious shopping money on things that they and their kids might not like. So it's a great sort of vehicle to get people to try different things. So from that very humble beginning of these cooking classes, within a few months, we rolled out the programme across London into community centres, hostels, refuges, always in community spaces, we knew the people there had the most to gain. So they were either suffering discrimination, marginalisation or economic disparity, whatever the circumstances, we really targeted those groups of people because we could see they would benefit the most from this sort of intervention um again incredible results and always so varied you know we when we went to the women's refuge two of the women after the course set up a vegan brownie business this is just 6 weeks cooking with us it inspired them to set up a vegan brownie business we went to a housing estate in poplar and the course was isolated men living alone over 55 who needed to learn to cook this group of men did 6 weeks cooking with our teacher and after that, they led a men's vegan pop-up cafe. Every time the community had a fun day, an open day, a Christmas fair, this group of fellas who'd never cooked before in their lives got together and cooked stews and soups and said, well, well, it's good for the community because it's inclusive, it's kosher, it's halal, it's this, it meets everyone's needs. And they loved it. And it became a really great outlet for their mental health, for friendship and They were fine with it being vegan because they had such happy memories of the vegan course they did with us. We saw so many benefits in terms of health. We had a lady who cured her, well, you're not allowed to say cured, her type 2 diabetes went into remission after doing two six-week courses with us and then for six months rolling with the suggestions from our courses at home. And she emailed us to say, I no longer need to take any insulin. But we had all of these incredible anecdotal stories pouring into the organization so we could see what we were doing really really worked we did have some challenges we tried to work with the nhs diabetes department back in 2013 and got quite i'm not quite sure if rude is the right word but um quite a firm pushback But I persisted, I persisted, I remained polite. And sort of nine years later, that department, we now have a collaborative program with them and we deliver programs specifically for type 2 diabetes patients. So sometimes it takes people a while to catch up with you. But if you're persistent and polite, you get them to come on board in the end. So that was what Made in Hackney was all about. We've since expanded. We have a plant prospects program, which tours nationally, and that goes around doing, delivering workshops and skills training for restaurants, hospitals, universities, people that really influence what thousands of people eat. And we do um, inspiration and skill building workshops in plant-based skills. And at the end of those workshops, they make a pledge like all our desserts are going to be vegan or all our cooking classes are going to be vegan. And then we check up on them. Our colleague checks up on them to see how they're getting on with their target and if there's anything else we could do to support them. And then our final program is Global Plant Kitchens. This is where we've consolidated 10 years of learning, 10 years of community cooking, community um, activism into a online learning course. The course is completely free. It's divided into modules like fundraising, marketing, outreach, lesson planning. So you can choose the bit you most is useful to you. And we're actually looking for five mentors internationally and nationally. We have five already but we're looking for five more groups or individuals that want to set up a vegan community initiative and are looking for one year's mentoring with us. So that opportunity is out there. We have a group in Peru, Macau, the Netherlands, and then we have Exeter and Cambridge in the UK so we're looking for five more to help accelerate a movement of plant-based cooking skills because we haven't really got another 10 years for people to do what we've done over 10 years we need to help people achieve it much quicker. Hi
2: there I'm Andy Oliver I'm a chef I'm a broadcaster and I'm now very happy and proud to say I'm an ambassador for Made in Hackney. So today I'm at the community meal service. I've just chopped up a vast gastro Full of butternut squash because I'm working with your incredible chefs to deliver a recipe that I've shared with you and we're going to be delivering it later to some of the beneficiaries. I chose the dish that we're cooking today because it's nutritious, it's colourful and mainly it's really delicious. Absolutely beautiful people working really really hard, supporting each other. Everybody's carrying things with each other, sharing each other. They gave me a board, they gave me a knife, they gave me a gastro and we just got off with it. It's my kind of kitchen, that's what I love the people that are making this food really care about it. What inspired me the most is that it's so people-centered and it's so connected. And I think the last few years has really shown us if you don't have that kind of connected community, then things fall apart really, really quickly. You know, a tiny little team in quite a small space doing huge, beautiful things, and that, is what it's all about as far as I'm concerned. Made in Hackney is a small but perfectly formed charity and you can help by giving anything that you can and I would really urge you to help us, support us in this incredibly important work.
1: Six years ago you did a a TEDx talk titled Why the World Needs Community Kitchen. So in a nutshell, (laughs) I think your talk was 17 minutes, Yeah, what's the abridged version of that? Why do we need to see more Made in Hackneys around the world?
0: We need to see more Made in Hackneys around the world because they are a vital tool in building practical skills. But also we we're talking about human psychology earlier. It's one thing being told by environmentalists or being told by your doctor or GP to change your diet. But if you can't experience it in a positive way where you actually learn to cook, enjoy the food, share it with people and build a community around that, it's very unlikely you're going to successfully make that food transition. So for me, that is the most important aspect of community kitchens. It brings the food alive. Yes, they also provide emergency food support for people and they provide critical life skills in cooking. But to actually go on that journey of dietary transition in a way that feels positive and like something you want to do rather than something you ought to do, that can only really be achieved in a face-to-face setting like Made in Hackney. You can look at Instagram videos, you can chat to your friends but it's never gonna be as effective as being held in a joyful, supported space where you go on that journey in in lessons in two and a half hours or in six week courses. The change is always so much more rapid and, and deeply seated in your being, as opposed to just, oh, I should probably go a bit more vegan, scroll. Oh, maybe I won't. Oh, now I'm distracted about something else. So they are such a powerful tool for transformation. So if I could take myself back five years and say something to the lady in the basement, crying her eyes out, thinking we were never going to open. I would say, we will. Not just because I now know that a group of amazing local people will come together and build the kitchen themselves, take that sexist builder, but because it has to. For the sake of health and people and planet, It has to. Thank you for listening.
1: Community is a key part of of bringing the the cultural shift that we need because for most people, when they make the shift to a plant based diet, which is a huge departure from their life well, most of the life of consuming animal products, if they don't have that support network around them, most people go back to eating animal products. There's that rhetoric and that message that constantly comes into their ear every day, or just have a bit of cheese, no one's going to know, or just have a bit of bacon, nobody's going to know. These are the kinds of things that people are told on a daily basis by friends and family, because they want to see this person who has tried to do something a bit different. They want to see them fail. I don't know why. I don't understand the thinking behind it, maybe it makes them feel better about the choices I, I that they're making. I understand <laughs> the
0: thinking behind it. Yeah, it, because it it's it's like if you're in a pub and everyone's drinking, and you say, "I'll have an orange juice," it, there can be a ripple of discomfort because suddenly that is an unspoken judgment on their choices to drink, and it's not. It's your decision when you make a stand, but you're you're not prepared to make a stand. People feel judged in a way that's unspoken. And so if you fail, they can stop feeling that discomfort. That's what's going on there. It's like a subliminal feeling of, ooh, maybe I should be doing that, but there's no way I'm going to. So I'm reacting. The people that react the strongest to it are generally the ones deep down that know they should be doing it.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. Moving on to other issues that affect many people. In the UK, the data shows that 4.3 million people, this is according to Diabetes UK, uh, are living with diabetes. And they say that around 90% of people with diabetes have type 2 diabetes. We now know that this is obviously a lifestyle disease. It's not just caused by, I think a lot of people, when you ask them about diabetes, they go, oh, it's caused by sugar. We should just stop eating sugar. It's much more complex than that. You know, type 2 diabetes, yeah, as you mentioned, we can put it into remission. We can reverse the damage or the symptoms done in many cases. So, you had a, a, a program to help people with type 2 diabetes. Love to hear a bit more about that and uh, how that's been and some of the success stories around that program. Because I think when you first start to talk to people about this, they go, How's that possible? You know, I need to be taking drugs and uh, I need to see a doctor and I need to uh, go on some medical protocol. But, you know, how do people not know this? <laughs> I mean, I will
0: say to begin, it is very difficult. Some people are genetically predisposed to being more likely to experience type 2 diabetes. Some people are also genetically predisposed to carrying more weight. So for some people living in an obesogenic environment where we're constantly promoted sugar, high fat, salt, sugar foods, it's going to be extremely difficult for those people to not Become diabetic or to not become sincerely overweight. So, some people do not have as easy a gig as others. And, you know, economic factors come into that as well. Are you living in a food desert where literally the only access to, to food is the fish and chip shop and the corner shop? You know, there's a lot at play here. So, we need to make sure people aren't feeling judged if they're diabetic or you know have lifestyle related health diseases because they are kind of pushing a boulder up a hill at the moment with the current environment we're living in that said you absolutely can in many cases not all reverse type 2 diabetes with key lifestyle changes connected to exercise and diet choices and plant based diet is a really powerful tool in that toolkit you know we had a lady only recently um we had a group of Afro-Caribbean heritage women with type 2 diabetes, because we find it's really useful to make sure we have a teacher that matches the student's culture and heritage so that the food cooked is relevant. You don't want loads of very white Eurocentric food being offered to a group of people who really aren't necessarily going to eat that or it doesn't resonate with them. So this lady said to us, I have been trying to address my insulin levels for four years and I've done Weight Watchers, and I've done you know this, that, and the other, and I've been to all of the lessons that the NHS give us about diabetes. I've done free lessons with you, and my insulin levels have dropped already. She said, I cannot believe it. I am astounded, and I enjoy the food. I thought it wasn't going to fill me up. I thought it was going to feel like I was on diet food, but I've been proven wrong on every point, and I've also made 10 new friends all wonderful women who are all in the same boat as me. So it's like therapy. It's like cooking, therapy, delicious food, a great time. And when you leave that class, instead of thinking, oh, because we we went to the diabetes training course that the um, NHS offers called Expert. Now it's a fantastic program for learning about the nuts and bolts and science of having diabetes if you're diabetic. Fantastic. When it comes to inspiring you to make diet change, it absolutely collapses through the floor and is appalling. We went to a supermarket and they spent the whole time telling us what you couldn't eat. So you spent an hour feeling depressed. You can't eat that. You can't eat that. You can't eat this. You're like... It it was the opposite of a Coca-Cola advert, which is all like love and happiness. And you think, oh, I want to drink that because, you know, it's about love and happiness, even though the drink is appalling and it's going to rot your teeth and make you feel ill. Just this that they understand successful marketing is about sort of love and hope and community and all the good things. whereas the kind of expert diabetes program that the NHS for offering really didn't get that crucial bit. It was a brilliant science, terrible behavior change. So we really ran with that to make sure that all of our diabetes cooking classes are the polar opposite and that people have a great time and people have food that's comforting and replicates their uh, really enjoyed cultural foods. And it's something that you want to do. And we've, we've had huge success with these courses. And um, a lot of the NHS diabetes practitioners now uh, working in Homerton and other hospitals around London do refer their uh, patients to our cooking classes just as one of the potential interventions that they can do, which is fantastic. And the first time they did that, I nearly dropped to my knees because, you know, it had been such a tough gig eight years ago when they were really quite mean and rude to me that finally I could see that there was this openness and information that plant-based food can be such an amazing tool we have a couple of NHS dietitians who are vegan who have come to work for us and that was also such a great bridge building exercise because they had the qualifications they had the job but they were they personally were vegan and so that built a lot of bridges between us and more mainstream Health providers, because I think before they thought, oh, they're a bit left field, those kind of culty, slightly strange health fanatics over there. But now they kind of realise we're actually a very viable tool for people to make the changes they need
1: to support their type two diabetes. It's so interesting and inspiring, but also I think again back to what I said before about people who hear this who've never heard this before and are struggling with this these health issues, they can't believe that it's so simple obviously getting people to the food is 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 sometimes the challenge as you mentioned food deserts you mentioned obviously like poverty is a big you know it's a huge issue in our society as we've you know discussed about the UK and the food security issues we have even in such a wealthy country and you know if we're having it here in this country it's everywhere people are struggling with all all over the place this is why it's so important to make this information freely available and accessible and i think this is again a, a real vital part of having these community kitchens which is making it Easy for people to get somewhere where they can get this knowledge if they want to have it, if they want to learn more, and getting the information out there. That's why it's so important to you know, I believe to support platforms like Made in Hackney because you know the, the government certainly aren't going to do it. So we have to take charge ourselves. We have to take control and uh, and support the people in the community around us if we want to see real change. You've obviously got there's a global program you mentioned. You know the the global plants kitchen. Plant kitchens. Um, Tell us about how you are able to, and your thoughts on expanding this ethos and this this strategy out into the world. Because obviously, you know, it's a movement, isn't it? Made in Hackney is not just a community kitchen; it's a movement. It's a
0: movement, absolutely. And we say that in our in our video, actually, our organisational video, we say this is not just a cooking school; it's a movement. Maybe five years ago, if I take you back to that, possibly longer. Gosh, nine years ago, we were looking into. Do we franchise Made in Hackney? Because people always said, are you going to do Made in Cardiff? Are you going to do Made in Nottingham? Are you going to do, you know, etc." And we looked into it and we thought the reason why Made in Hackney is so successful is because it's a unique response to the community of Hackney and the surrounding boroughs in London, where it's very diverse. There's a lot of footfall. There's a lot of people, etc. There's many key principles of Made in Hackney that can work all over the UK and all over the world. But the best delivery would be localised groups that are responding in a very unique way to the cultural specific needs of their local communities. So to just roll out as a franchise was never really going to work. And it wasn't really the kind of ethos. You know, we wanted to movement build. We didn't want to empire build. You know, there wasn't. Sometimes you can forget what your goal is in that sort of endless pursuit for growth. Sometimes you you need to remind yourself that the goal is impact. The goal is change. The goal isn't your entity just becoming enormous. You know, the goal is more people making positive changes. So we decided the best way to do that would be to have a sort of mentoring and training scheme where we could share our knowledge and accelerate other people's journeys to setting up similar but unique to their area projects. Now, it took us five years to get this project funded because no one was interested in it. So a little bit of backstory. In the UK, funders tend to be very conservative. So where a lot of charities get their money from, trusts and grants, etc. the people that make the decisions are a lot of kind of old white men, basically, not to, not to offend anyone, a lot of old white men. And the idea that plant-based food is a health intervention, a community intervention, and an environmental intervention, woo straight over the head. So many grants are available for environmental interventions in the UK, and none of them include diet change. To date, 2024, none of them include diet change. They include, you know, reforesting, rewilding, tree planting, community gardens, you know, uh, plastic, dialing down plastic, never ever diet change. So for us to access money to fund our work, we've had to do this real dance of looking at the funder, And just dialing up, this is all about community. This is all about community and elders connecting and make it all about that. Or this is all about, so we've been able to adapt. But it's been quite exhausting because just the key principles of our work brings communities together. It's an amazing tool to tackle the climate crisis and health inequalities. People just weren't up to speed with that. So it took five years to get our global plant kitchen program funded because People just didn't see the need and the, the benefit of it, which used to blow my mind. So I'm delighted that we finally did get it funded and that it's finally rolled out and in the world and available for people to use. But yeah, it took a long time, Bobby, to get that going.
1: It's amazing, yeah, and it's very much needed. But as you say, it's the it's frustrating at the speed at which these things move. I think it's because a lot of the time people don't really see they don't really see the problem. Uh, most people are so busy in their lives that they don't really take the time to, I guess, take a moment to perceive the complexity of these issues. And I think when you're working on the ground on the grass in the grassroots of of, of a community, you can see these you can see the big picture, I suppose. And this is where, you know, activism is so important. And what you are doing is activism. It's not the, you know, it's not the sort of screaming at people on street corners, meat is murder, which there are people that do that and they, they believe in what they're doing. But in, in in my view, this type of work is, it's about changing our culture and shifting attitudes in ways that build a, a resilient and supportive structure around what we're trying to, to change here, because it isn't just about, as we said, it isn't just about getting people to shift what they eat. It's an entire mindset change as well, because obviously if one person changes, if the people around them aren't on board or aren't even allies, then you know we're not going to go anywhere, are we? Like we we're not asking everyone to go vegan or plant based, but we're asking for support and allyship. You know, you don't. We're not forcing you to eat plant based every single day. We're asking you to to consider eating more plants uh, and and less meat for for variety of of health and environmental reasons.
0: It's such a beautiful way as a vegan of extending your compassion out into the world and for different community groups and their life experience. You know, veganism isn't a single issue. It's an entire mindset about how we compassionately and kindly walk and travel through this earth and interact with all living beings on it. And so with a community cookery school, you know, we've done work with some extremely traumatized groups. We've worked with women who have been trafficked. I mean, just horrific. And the cooking was a real healing, an act of self-care. And the fact that it was plant-based and there was no sort of visible violence on the plate was actually really beautiful for them. And some of them hadn't made that connection with how kind and compassionate the food was and how that made them feel better. You know, we've worked with um, unaccompanied minors who are arriving in the UK as asylum seekers, you know, age 14, 15, 16, and they're getting ready to live independently. And, you know, these children, they are still children, they're young adults, but they're children. Food is such a powerful way of reconnecting with their lost heritage, their parents, and our teachers are helping them to recreate those dishes, yes, plant-based versions, with the right flavour profiles. It's just such a beautiful vehicle for such a broad range of activism that when you start a project like that, it's almost impossible to imagine the many sort of tentacles and the beautiful ways in which it can impact people.
1: Yeah, getting support and building support is is a key part of this. And you mentioned uh, earlier about a partnership with Fuller's Pub uh, what's that about? Because uh, obviously, there's Fullers. Fullers, uh, for those that aren't in the UK, Fullers are, are everywhere. They are a huge network of pubs across the country. Tell us about your partnership with Fullers.
0: Yeah, that was a really exciting partnership because we're called Made in Hackney. In some ways, that name has limited our growth because people think we're a very grassroots initiative when we're not. So we have sort of talked about changing the name, but it's. You know, we've had it for a long time and we're quite quite you know attached to it. So the Fuller's partnership was fantastic because they could see beyond the name and they could see that we were really changing the landscape and the whole ecosystem around the feeling towards plant-based foods. And I actually met the director of food at a panel discussion. I was on a panel with him and he said, you know what, Fuller's pubs, we have a hero cheese maker we have a hero veg grower we have heroes in all the pillars of our menu but we don't have a plant-based hero and I really think made in Hackney you could be our plant-based hero and so the food director came in one of our incredible chefs Sarita Puri cooked phenomenal food for him you know showcasing vegan cheeses, different vegan uh, flavor profiles. He was really keen that we didn't use any manufactured processed fake meat. There's definitely a place for that, but he didn't want it on his menu. So we developed in partnership with him a Whole Foods plant-based burger using quinoa and mushrooms and sunflower seeds, and it is absolutely delicious, and it was very exciting to see it developed in our little community cookery school, and now it's made in a big factory, and they... um send the patty mixture out to the pubs and then they each of them have a burger press so it's it's pressed on site but the extra mixture comes from a you know a main factory point and it's sold as a fundraising dish item for us so for every plant-based burger sold we get 50p which is fantastic now you won't find it in every single Fuller's pubs because Fuller's pubs have a big menu bank which they choose items they pull down menus from the menu bank but it is the only vegan burger they can choose so if they want to have a plant-based burger on their menu they currently have to choose the made in Hackney one which is really good
1: You talked a bit about faux meats I I personally don't like to call them fake meats because it, it it really puts people off because it's they're not it's not yes, fake it, food that's is it true. It's, Yeah it is, uh, you know, it's plant-based meat or, uh, I mean, the, the technical meat, yes. term is, is, is meat analog, which I think sounds really like oh. scientific. But yeah, meat analog yeah. is its kind of like industry name. But I like to say plant-based meat. It's meat made from plants. Uh, however, over the last um, half decade, five years, the noise around plant-based meat has gone from one of celebration and excitement to one of, I guess, fear and resentment. Right. You know plant-based meats which are is meat made from plants and in the uk particularly quite i'm quite quite pleased that a lot of the the ingredients are mostly of natural origin they're not they're not from they're not synthetic you know i think people look at these products and think they're synthetic but actually when you look at the origins of a lot of the of the ingredients they come from plant sources obviously they're isolated substances there's this rhetoric that it's not natural, that it contains too many ingredients, and it's got chemicals in it. But, you know, let's take one of the chemicals in, in plant-based meat, which is quite common. It's a binder. It's called methylcellulose. Now, methylcellulose sounds really complicated and science but all it is is plant cellulose. But the meat industry has taken that methylcellulose word. It sounds like a complex chemical which you know it is in a way and has painted a picture of it as a chemical laxative. Now we all know that if you take uh, too much fiber and if you eat too much plant fiber you <laughs> it will make things move, let's just say that. And so the meat industry has done a real number on us on the plant-based meats world by painting a narrative that plant-based meats are heavily processed and are incredibly unhealthy for you, which is completely untrue because it isn't about this is good and that's bad. It's about the ingredients and the volume. So salt, sugar, and refined oils. These are the things that we need to be looking out for in all foods. You know, these are the additives that can cause health issues, saturated fat, for example. So you stop a person in the street and you say, oh, uh, have you had any vegan burgers before? What do you think of vegan burgers? And now quite common, it's quite common for people to say, oh, it's terribly processed. It's terribly unhealthy.
0: It, It is, isn't it? The irony, the irony.
1: But yet they're happy to eat their beef burgers, which are loaded with saturated fat, antibiotics, PCBs, hormones, hormones, bovine viruses, bacterium, salmonella, goodness knows what else. But they're happy to feed that to their children. But they are afraid to feed their children plant based meat, because the meat industry through advertising and media has begun to build this very strong narrative, this cultural narrative, ultra processed food equals bad. It's a false narrative, ultra processed does not equal bad food, does not equal toxic food. Bread is ultra-processed food. Rice is processed. It's not ultra-processed, but it's processed. Many foods we eat every day go through some level of process. Anything that's touched by human hands or a machine is a process of some form. So, you know, this this idea that processed food is shocking and terrible, you know, for many people, it's the only food that they can afford. Uh, It's the only way they can get the calories that they need. And we need to be able to give people the tools to work with some amount of processed food and then hopefully bulking it out. But could you talk a bit about the challenges of this? Because it's a big part of the conversation where it's been heavily demonised processed food.
0: So we get approached by media quite often who are looking for this polarised debate, a kind of, what did you call it, analogue meat Bad, meat analogs you know, whole foods <laughs> sorry good and they want that and they think they're going to get that from us because they can see we promote cooking from scratch and they can see that on our you know our instagram and our websites how to make sausages from scratch etc and they will never actually get that opinion that it's bad from us we think it's a great gateway product we think it's really useful convenient it's brilliant for people who are segueing, you know out of eating meat into a more plant-centered diet there is certainly a place for it. But we're a cooking school. So we obviously teach people to cook things from scratch, because that's what we do. But we know there's no way that we're sort of against those kind of products, which is often quite disappointing for journalists looking for that polarised view where they haven't found that voice with us. You know, in our classes with teenagers, it's really important that they get to choose what's on the menu the following week. So if they say we'd like to you know cook with some you know vegan chicken or some vegan beef we say yeah of course bring it in That we'll show you how to cook it how to deal with it the best but in our other cl- classes we do mainly cook from scratch because that's that's the skills that we're building with people but yeah it's absolutely it's so important and the meat industry they have so much money they have so much marketing and lobbying power you know behind them they've done uh, you know an incredible mind trick in like you say, people associating plant-based products with it being heavily processed and bad. But if you just walk into any supermarket, it's quite clear how many more products are non-vegan that are full of absolute shite. Sorry, excuse my language. Um, <laughs> Feel free <and> to swear. <laughs> the, you know, <laughs> and, you know, the the attention should be directed at that. But instead, they've done something so clever and just pivoted that whole opinion about being excessively overprocessed and not good for the body at vegan products
1: it's a diversion um, yeah. tactic it's a it's a of distraction it mechanism of yeah.
0: course it is and then they're obviously very good at choosing the la- the ingredients labels that are very 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 long and generally there is this idea that if an ingredients label is very very long it's possibly got some stuff in it that's not great for you. But obviously that that on its own can be nonsense because it could be a huge list of delicious spices. But, it, you know, but I do understand there is that sometimes when things are very, very long and you don't understand the words on a lot of them, it can be quite off-putting because you're like, well, what exactly is that? That's not a food I recognise. So I think it's really important that you give people knowledge to recognize things that aren't good for the body and we can't digest them. And they're actually a very new invention that our body is going to struggle to digest. And things that are actually just kind of clever food manufacturing process that combines very natural ingredients into something useful that might be a binder. And the two are quite different.
1: Yeah, it's so true. It's all education and awareness, I think, isn't it? There was a there was a funny meme that went round a few years ago someone put a post out saying it's basically something about water. Dihydrogen monoxide is the chemical name for water. And there was this parody that went around about people saying, there's this chemical in all our food, it's toxic, it's dangerous, dihydrogen and, and it And it went viral and people were freaking out about this. But this was just water they were referring to. And this idea that chemicals are bad is ridiculous. Because everything is made of chemicals. Our bodies are made of chemicals. The fruit that we love is made of chemicals. If you just Google peach chemical makeup, you'll get a graphic which shows a perfectly normal natural peach with about 60 chemicals that it's made up of. You know, There's an awareness of basic chemistry, um, which I think a lot of people slept through chemistry. I I understand why people find it boring. Personally, I loved it. I find how things work and what things are made up of Fascinating. This is why I love nutrition because our bodies are we're biological machinery and the fuel that we use to power our bodies is food. You know, we are what we eat. Speaking of we are what You Are What You Eat, there's a fantastic documentary that just launched on Netflix. Please watch it. You Are What You Eat, The Twin Experiment by Luis Ayos, who created Game Changers, um, a really great experiment with uh, identical twins, one being fed an omnivorous diet, a healthy omnivorous diet, and another a healthy vegan diet. Um, the results weren't as groundbreaking as I was expecting, but it still opened a lot of people's eyes to the idea that, you know, there's an alternative way of living. But I digress. <laughs> Chemicals are in everything. And we need to educate people that, you know, some of these words are not as scary as they sound. And that actually what's important is to understand what's in our food, where it comes from, and how it's being made in the sense of additives, you know, ad- added sugars, you know, refined and clarified oils. There's certain things that we need to be mindful of, you know, artificial colors, artificial sweeteners, artificial. Preservatives, a lot of these things do have health concerns associated with them. Some, many are banned in many countries. Those are the things we need to worry about pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, all the things that are sprayed on our food to keep it fresh, to stop it getting eaten by bugs. This is all the stuff that people need to be learning about. But then at the same time, I'd love everyone to be eating healthy organic food, but you go into the supermarket and it's like double the triple the price, you know. I can you can understand why people are nervous and anxious around the food that they eat because not only are they worrying about like is it safe to eat because it's covered in pesticides they're also worried you know uh, should i be eating this food or not is it safe is it healthy the meat industry over here are saying i have to eat beef because it's got natural b12 and then we've got vegans over here saying you can just have a supplement but then a dietitian said that you know we shouldn't all be living on supplements that's not natural when you start to listen oh, to all a of minefield. this, it's a
0: minefield. It's a minefield, and you know I'm very strong-willed, balanced person surrounded by lots of very learned, expert people in nutrition and all sorts of fields. And I, you know, when I had my child, I had a bit of a panic, like, "Oh, is he going to get everything he needs, etc." Because we are in a, a whirlwind of information, misinformation, and also people lean into the facts that resonate most with their personal worldview. So you can find the facts that's peer reviewed to substantiate bias, pretty right? much any exactly to substantiate any approach to diet. So it's all about finding the common sense middle ground. Um, our nutritionist Rahini Bajakal, who works for us as a teacher, she often says there's actually not much natural about us living past the age of forty five, fifty. But actually, the fact that we're needing supplements is no surprise, and particularly if you can. Consider that against the profile of how our soil health has degraded, which means the food we 're eating is nutritionally depleted, so even if you 're eating a very healthy diet, then the actual nutrition you 're getting from the food is a lot less than possibly fifty years ago because the soil is so depleted, so you know having to take supplements is almost just a result of modern living, the fact that civilization is still here and that we are aging and we 're living and we don 't only want to age we want to age and still have a great quality of life and so we are going to have to use science in order to achieve that and that will include supplements
1: absolutely and there's this this thing called the appeal to nature fallacy which suggests that because something is natural then that means it's good for you or it's healthy or it's better you know snake poison is natural it's not very good for you you know
0: i am a sucker for this robbie (laughs) an absolute sucker (laughs) My tribe, my people, we lean into nature. We cure ourselves with herbs and mushrooms and we see the herbalist and we see the acupuncturist. So it becomes very scary when we need to take allopathic medicine, but that's something we just need to get over. This sort of tribalization of lifestyle views is is quite dangerous and it leads you into having um, ungrounded, unscientific views on things because you're sort of within your tribe. This is how we do things. And I'm so aware of my own sort of leanings and how that can influence my opinion and make me feel scared of very beneficial medical interventions which I should just be delighted exist. So I I try and question myself and prod myself all the time to see what's going on with my biases.
1: Yeah, medicine and and things that come in a pill form are, are very interesting, you know, because obviously, we've got things like the placebo effect and the nocebo effect, which is the opposite of the placebo effect. You know, there's lots of studies that show that when people are given certain pills, even if they're sugared pills, it can have some kind of effect on the human body. So our minds play a key role in in how effective medicine works in the body. But also, supplementation is is not as scary and, and unusual as people would think. And a lot of the time, these substances like B12, for example, cyanocobalamin, which is your chemical name, there's another chemical for you, a chemical name for B12, is made by cyanobacteria in the soil. The cows eat the poop in the soil, the cows eat their poop in the soil, it happens. And then this is how their gut is proliferated with B12. They also produce some in their gut as well. We do as well, but in very, very small quantities, very tiny quantities. And that's why we need to get it from the soil. You know, it's it's a bit of an alien thing for people because they don't really understand what this chemical is, where it comes from. And then you're given a pill and they see that as an unnatural means. But ironically, because it's formulated specially for your body, when you eat that pill, it absorbs much more quickly. Your body doesn't need to do much work and it ironically goes into the system and is integrated into your body in a really efficient way. And so isolated substances and many dietitians will will explain and attest to this. It's not unnatural to consume um, a supplement because humans have evolved the technology to be able to extract nutrients from plants, from the soil, whatever and put it in a handy convenient package. But because of the history and the and the association with pills and medicine and side effects. People have this emotional response to a pill. Ironically, more people are happier about drinking a liquid, you know, rather than taking a pill, they take a a liquid and they're more comfortable with that. But it's the same thing. (laughs)
0: I have read and I don't know if this is you know I'm not a medical professional but I have read that uh, liquids can often be more bioavailable and easily absorbed by some people so there can also be a benefit to taking your vitamins in liquid form but yeah I mean my family I always give supplements to myself my family as I age I'm going through perimenopause supplements are life and become absolutely critical so yeah, the idea that supplementation is bad, really needs to be left behind. Supplementation is fantastic and increasingly needed in our modern world.
1: So before I let you go, I'd love to hear about like what's the future because you are stepping back from Maiden Hackney, a bit like me stepping back from Plant Based News, which is I've not announced that on this podcast. Uh, so I'm stepping back from Plant Based News. You're stepping back from Maiden Hackney, new roads ahead of us. Tell us about what's uh, what's next for you.
0: Yes. So I'm going to be an ambassador for Made in Hackney, and that will include trying to secure some creative projects for the charity, which I have long, longed to do. But when you're behind the nuts and bolts of the operations of the day-to-day, it's very difficult to nurture. So we're in the process of securing a cookery book deal. We've signed with an agent called Avitas and they're shopping our book deal currently, which is very, very exciting. Um, Also, in my final 11th year, a day-to-day in the operation. I've been nominated, nominated for the Vegan Women's Summit Founder of the Year Award, which is a really lovely way to ride out the day-to-day operations. And then what's incoming for me is I will be setting up a consultancy to work with, you know, civic society, charities, organisations, corporations who genuinely want to bring about positive change for people and the planet. I'm not interested in talking shops. I'm not interested in greenwashing. I'm not interested in box ticking exercises. I'm interested in radical progressive change where people are prepared to go through the uncomfortable process of questioning all parts of their organisation and business, whether that's to do with equity, the environment, employability rights etc and to bring them up and really do better and strive for better and that's something I feel I have a lot to offer the world so I'm going to be packaging that up into a consultancy setting and then also longer future I'd really love to write books but that that's you know a bit further off that dream.
1: Amazing. Well, that sounds very exciting. And um, I am excited to support you on your journey. Um, the next year is going to be very interesting. We've got a lot of work ahead of us and lots of big challenges to to face up to. But I think personally, I have, um, as obviously, societally, we have as well. <laughs> We're going to have two major elections in this next year in the USA and the UK. We have a lot of strange things going on in the world a lot of sad things going on in the world, a lot of war uh, if you're listening to this in the future it is 2024 and there is even more war than there has been in in many many decades before and so we are all trying to remain resilient and uh, emotionally stable through that. And I think eating good food and building strong community is a vital tool to weathering the the, the emotional challenges of life on planet Earth today. So thank you for your time, Sarah. It's what a pleasure to have you on the episode. But before I let you go, I like to always ask my guest this final question. If you listen to this podcast, you know what's coming next. If you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig, you're not going to eat the pig because you're vegan. <laughs> if I could give you one vegan dish, one music artist, and one book, what would you take with you on your desert island?
0: The one vegan dish would be the vegan dish that sparked my transition to veganism. And that would be a big plate of Jamaican idle food. So there'd be rice and peas, callaloo, pumpkin, baked plantain, all the good stuff. That would be my desert island plate. Oh, just thinking about it. I want to eat it. One artist, one musician. Gosh, one musician. That is really hard to choose. Do you know, I might be controversial and go for something quite cheesy and choose Bob Marley because he's found such a breadth of moods. One So go, go, go for classic. Some people might say it's a bit cheesy, but I'd go for a classic. And what was the last one, a book?
1: The book, what book would you take with you?
0: I think I would take The Alchemist.
1: Oh, that's one of my top three favourite books. I love it.
0: (laughs) And, you know, it's short. And I think if you're alone with a pig on a desert island, you might need that (laughs) simple but deep philosophical message while you're alone with the pig yeah
1: amazing thank you sarah for joining us on the pbn podcast uh what a pleasure to hear a bit of your story and uh really excited to see uh where the next year takes us
0: thank you so much robbie and i'm really excited to see your journey as well i'm totally here for that
1: you've been listening to the plant-based news podcast our team also includes phil marriott
0: Polly Foreman,
1: daryl savchuk
2: Triska taylor
1: Hope you enjoyed that episode. We'll be back next time with more food, fashion, veganism, animals and everything in between.